13. We're on a series in the, the Gospel of Luke. It started early this year, and it's going to continue. Uh, just rolled out the, 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 the messages for this fall semester. So if you want, those cards are in the back, like Brian said. You can see what is going to be preached each uh, week coming through uh, until the spring semester of, you know, the, the different schools are, are back in session. Uh, so till the second week of January. And uh, we will mostly be going through Luke. We'll also have a kind of a side series going through the Psalms this fall. A few Psalms of David, so I'm excited about that. Um, but this morning, we finish up our summer session of sermons in Luke. And we're going to be looking at a long passage, 18.9 through 19.27. Um, so let's read. I'll read for you. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them, and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. But when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is passing by. 
And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I may have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. It's a common trope in movies, isn't it? For the character to be near death or to believe that they're near death. And, and so they embark on a quest to finish their work or to pass on the wisdom they've accrued or sometimes simply to make amends and fix some problem that they've created in their life. And I imagine we would feel a similar urgency if we were in that position. If you had a week or week and a half or so to left to live, what would you do? What would you pass on? 
Where would your thoughts lie? What would keep you up at night? That's sort of the situation we find Jesus in, in Luke 18, 9 through 19, 27. He's continuing to journey from Galilee to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration with a keen awareness that he's going to die. And in these last days before he enters Jerusalem, there's a certain urgency to his message. In this passage, Luke records seven, seven separate episodes moving through confusion and confession, faith and frailty, the lost and the found. But thematically, these, these seven episodes kind of flow in and out of one another to highlight one really important theme. And that's this, that only those who live a cross-shaped life can be citizens of the kingdom. Only those who live a cross-shaped life can be citizens of the kingdom. And because of the overlapping and and sort of intertwined nature of these themes, these seven episodes describe uh, five pictures or five comportments of a a cross-shaped life. And and we're going to tackle them roughly in the order that each one becomes obvious in the text. So the first of these. uh, In the first episode, we, we see, you know, it begins with this statement that he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So we know why he told this one. There were some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. The parable itself is pretty straightforward. Jesus paints this beautiful dichotomy between two prayers at the temple. One is a Pharisee, and the Pharisee stands by himself, doubtless, so that he does not become unclean by coming into contact with the riffraff that have gathered there. The Pharisee begins to offer a prayer of thanksgiving, but the prayer of thanksgiving is entirely about how great he himself is. And then he goes on to defend to God why, in fact, he is so incredible. He fasts more than Jewish custom required, and he tithes. That is, he gave a a tenth, 10% of everything he had. He's quite proud of how righteous he's gotten. But in contrast, we have this tax collector uh, to whom the Pharisee compares himself, and he stands far off, undoubtedly a posture of unworthiness. Tax collectors, as we've seen many times now in Luke, were often looked down upon by others because they had a reputation for being cheats and sometimes even as traitors serving the Roman Empire instead of the Jewish people. But one didn't have to be a cheat to be a tax collector. We don't know what his sins are. The point is that this typically detested man actually feels the weight of his guilt and severely. He can't even look up figuratively to the abode of God. And he beats his chest and he begins, God Be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says it is the second man who is justified, not the first. That means not justified as in, okay, I I understand where you're coming from. You've defended yourself well, but justified in the sense that he has been put right with God. He came in not right with God. He left right with God. That's what justified 
means in Scripture. And that's surprising for a couple reasons. The Pharisee in the story didn't ask for forgiveness. In fact, he gave the impression perhaps that he didn't need forgiveness, that there was nothing for which he needed to ask God for forgiveness. There was nothing he needed to repent for. But whether or not he knew it, the implicit point is that all of us, from those seemingly most righteous among us to those who are seemingly the most unrighteous among us, are desperately in need of forgiveness. We all go in filthy. But it's also surprising because it demonstrates how absolutely willing God is to shower us with his mercy. The tax collector and his simple prayer go home forgiven. He's done wrong things. He's offended God. And God would be absolutely right to punish him, but God forgives him. It would be easy after 17 plus chapters of the Gospel of Luke that we have read and and seen all these times that the Pharisees have come up, it would be really easy for us to sort of exhale our displeasure about this self-righteous Pharisee. Oh, we know those types, right? We probably have some on our mind, those self-righteous people in our society, on the news, at work, in our neighborhoods, apartment buildings, maybe even we have a few of them in our families. They can be really obnoxious, can't they? And their hypocrisy is so irritating. But wait just a minute. Because the moment we make that charge in our hearts, the moment we look at that Pharisee in the parable and we sort of, I know that guy, I hate those guys. We've become the Pharisee ourselves. We have become the self-righteous person we claim to stand against. There's no mandate that you need to be a particularly religious person just to be a Pharisee, to be self-righteous and to look at others with contempt. And so you there who look down on those hateful Trump supporters with spite, and you there who secretly think that you're so much better than that photographer who wouldn't shoot a gay wedding, and, and, and you who can't stand that environmental nut job who lives next door, you think they've gone cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, and you, whoever you are, are the very one Jesus is indicting here. You who on some level have self-righteously put yourself in a place better than someone else. What distinguishes the tax collector, what sets him apart, is that he submits himself wholly before God. He doesn't try to compare himself to anyone else around him. There's no lepers There's no prostitutes, no cripples. He doesn't try to find who are the people below tax collectors that I can argue my case before God, that at least I'm not like them. He doesn't do that. It's him and God. And before God, he doesn't try to appeal to anything in himself. He doesn't doesn't say, God, I do this, I, I do this. There's no quality. There's no work. There's no effort. There is nothing that he holds up before God 
as if to say, look here, God, give me credit for this. He simply begs, God, have mercy on me. And mercy is by definition what is not owed to us. It's unearned. It's undeserved. There is forgiveness for those who can humbly stand before God and plead their case solely on his mercy rather than on their own merit. But hold on to that thought because there's a little more to this story because immediately it feeds into this episode where people are bringing him even infants that he might touch them. The disciples are annoyed and they rebuke the people who are doing this. It seems like, from what I can tell, in the ancient world, children, especially young children, were not looked at as having much standing in society. I apologize, I'm still getting over a head cold here. I mean, they were loved and they were cherished, but not like in America. In America, you know, we do everything for our children. We just had a a whole day of celebration for Elijah because it was his birthday yesterday, and now we're going to have a whole day of celebration for Micah today because it's his birthday. And I've had so many carbohydrates. It's <laughs> unreal. I don't get the feeling that that happened much in the ancient world. Children were loved but nuisance. They were loved but they were, they were not useful. They were not helpful. They cost you money. They cost you time. They were an afterthought. So they weren't very valuable members of society in their own right. And so no doubt the disciples saw this as a nuisance and a distraction. And it's unclear what the people thought they were doing by bringing these infants to Jesus. Uh, Some thinkers have suggested that with the high death rates of young children, they may have been uh, bringing them to Jesus for health or even for healing. Um, Maybe they were looking for the blessing of a religious leader. But whatever the case, the disciples found it inappropriate and they rebuke the people. But in what is probably very surprising for the time period, Jesus rebukes the disciples. He says they should come. And why? Because for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. So what's the meaning here? Luke has used this word receive uh, several times throughout his gospel, and it it generally means to welcome, to receive a guest. Uh, It's like a matter of hospitality. You know, the way I always learned this passage, and I suspect many of you did who grew up in church, is that Jesus' point is that we should somehow enter the kingdom like children, presumably trusting like a child might trust the parent who holds him or her in their arms. But as beautiful as that picture is, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer convinced it's right. I, I think actually what Luke, or, or what Luke is recording Jesus trying to, to get across to us is Jesus is comparing the, the welcoming of the kingdom to the welcoming of of the children. One must be receptive to the kingdom even as one would normally be receptive to a little infant. Jesus is suggesting that his followers ought to show hospitality, not just to those of equal or higher rank. That would have been the the standard in first century Palestine, and we've seen that 
in several other passages where people are trying to gain favor and gain social standing by entertaining and, and celebrating and welcoming the rich and the powerful or anybody who's one higher rung on the ladder. Certainly no one below you. They got to at least be equal so you're not moving down in the world. And, and Jesus is saying, show hospitality to the weakest and the most vulnerable and the most uh, or the least valuable uh, members of society. That is what I expect. These are the only ones who can receive the kingdom. So if we step back for a second and we take these two things together here, I think Luke is bringing these two stories together for us to show us that the first comportment of the, of the cross-shaped life of kingdom citizens is sort of a bi-directional humility. And I, I struggled for some way to phrase this that might be more memorable, and that's the best I can do. It's a, it's a bi-directional humility. So you can write that down. I'm sorry. It wasn't better. But it's a humility that, that operates two different ways. It's a, it's a humility that, that comes before God claiming nothing and begging only for mercy. That's a humility before God, the giver of life, our creator, our sustainer, our provider. And it's a humility that comes before other people, no matter how insignificant, a, a willingness to bend down and perform the most menial tasks of hospitality for them. It's one thing to be hospitable to those who are in your age bracket, or your economic bracket, or your social bracket, the people that you are most naturally comfortable with. That's easy. But Jesus says that those who receive my kingdom are also those who can humble themselves to receive with hospitality and care and a servant-hearted nature those who are very different than them, those who are weaker than them, those who do not bring you any benefit by being welcomed into your home. When King Jesus comes with his kingdom, his citizens will be those who exhibit this sort of bi-directional humility. The next episode we have involves a rich ruler, probably a religious ruler, maybe a leader of a synagogue, hard to be sure his exact role, but he has some prominence and he has money. And he, uh, <clears throat> on the heels of Jesus explaining how to become part of his coming kingdom, this man asks a very appropriate question. What about eternal life, Jesus? How do I get a part of this kingdom and the life to come? And Jesus begins by listing a handful of the Ten Commandments, of which the man is certain he has scrupulously kept them all his days. Now, Jesus skips the top three or four, depending on how you count, which uh, most people think of as the commandments that deal directly with our relationship with God. And so Jesus focuses on the, the back half of that list that focus on our relationships with human beings. And if we're looking at that list, there's one that Jesus leaves off. And when the, when the man gives him the confidence that I've done all those ones, Jesus changes gears. He says, sell everything. Give to the poor. Don't worry. You'll have treasure in heaven. Treasure that can't be lost. Treasure that can't be destroyed. Then, come follow me. And there's two things that are implied in this promise of eternal life. First, 
The first thing that is implicit here is that eternal life cannot be obtained without following Jesus. That's absolutely first. If you want to have eternal life instead of eternal destruction, you must follow Jesus. But second, the the hoarding of riches made it impossible for this man to follow Jesus. See, Jesus elsewhere described his mission as one where he was essentially homeless, dependent upon the generosity of those who welcomed or received his message. It would be impossible to live that kind of life while trying to maintain a grip on one's goods and stuff. And so Jesus was calling this man to give up his riches for the promise of eternal life. But he couldn't, because deep down he loved the riches of the world more. He had not kept the tenth commandment. He coveted. And so he leaves saddened. This leaves Jesus to proclaim that it is extremely difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom. And to those nearby, it was an unfathomable thought. If the rich can't be saved, who can? And if that seems like a funny thought to you, then maybe you need to kind of put yourself in the shoes of a very poor person. See, even today, in in the first century, the disparity in riches and poverty was enormous. But even today, in America, there's an assumption that if you're rich, you're doing something right. That you're living right, that you're working hard. And, And in religious circles, we have a tendency to think of that person as blessed. Blessed by God. In fact, many preachers exploit this by parading their fancy cars and jewelry and suits. And and I'm not even talking about the worst offenders on uh, TBN. For for some, this, this idea is so ingrained in our culture that there's just an expectation that they need to project success. And I think even some otherwise good men and women fall into this trap. But for many poor individuals, whether 2,000 years ago or today, there's sometimes a feeling that the rich then can be more righteous. And if you think about it, if you're destitute, and if you're out of options, you might feel compelled to steal. You might feel compelled to lie or cheat, hustle, just to survive. It doesn't make it right. Sometimes, though, you can just convince yourself that if you weren't so poor, you wouldn't have to do it. You you wouldn't do it, actually. But it's your circumstances. And that, even if you're not poor, never have been poor, I think you can understand. We all find ways of excusing our crimes, don't we? It's a lie. It's a lie straight from the devil, and it's a lie two ways. It's a lie, first, because God promises he'll care for his own even when it's hard. He'll never ask you to stoop to evil to survive. But secondly, it's a lie because the rich aren't that righteous. They're just not. They're just as black and blue, but they buy better makeup. And Jesus assures them, that yes, 
the rich can be saved, but it requires a miracle. Only God can do it. And frankly, that's the truth for the poor also. No one will come to the salvation offered by Jesus Christ unless God works a miracle in their heart. But the disciples who just a moment ago had been chastised for their lack of hospitality toward the weak and the vulnerable and these helpless babies, they pressed their case. And Peter speaks up and he said, they may not have been rich, at least most of them, but they had left everything to follow Jesus. And Jesus assures them they'll be rewarded, not just in the eternal life to come, but in the here and now. In, in, in the here and now, they are brought into a new family, the church with new brothers and, and new sisters who, who share with each other according to their needs. That's why God has given us the local church, is that we can be a part of one another's lives. And If that is not something that you have committed yourself to, I would encourage you to do it because you are missing out not only on the command of Jesus, but the blessing that Jesus offers his people. And so we have a juxtaposition here, again, of of, of the comportment of those who would not be counted among the citizens of the kingdom and those who will be counted among the citizens. And it's this, the citizens live out a renunciation of the riches of the world a renunciation of the world's riches. They live instead for the riches that they know are promised to them that are coming, the incomprehensible glories of an eternal life to come. You know, yesterday I was cruising social media and something came up about Social Security. Somebody just posted something dumb. And what else would they post? I, and I started thinking about it, and I started thinking about, you know, how does Social Security get paid out, you know, and, and hopefully I've got a long way to go. And, you know, I, and I don't really intend to retire per se, but you never know how things are going to go out. And, and, I, and I realized it doesn't, it doesn't pay out that much for a guy like me. And, and don't get me wrong, I've got other savings, and, and, I, and I do stuff like that, and I, I start to worry you know, my mind started going. I started worrying about whether, whether I'd be comfortable when I retire, if I had to retire, if I had to, like, not do anything. And then, and then I came back to this passage, and it kind of kicked my butt. And it's not that it's wrong to prepare. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's not. It's not wrong to save. But my job is to be faithful and, and to prudent and, and to let God do what God does. And if by chance I'm miserable for a few years on this earth, what is that to me? I'm not my own. I don't serve me. I serve a master who's good. And he's been faithful when I've been unfaithful. Uh, So what if I should suffer for a a short decade or two in in this world? What, What will I think of that in eternity? You know what I will think of it, I think? We, we were, telling you, I was celebrating Elijah's birthday yesterday, and he wanted to go to the batting cages because he loves baseball, and so we're at the batting cages, and I was, I was behind him coaching him with his swing, and he found one straight back, straight back and, and hard enough that it, it caught the net, and, and the net pushed back to the very extreme that it could push, and it hit me in the face, hit me, hit me in the eye, right here, 
was great. Um, caught me off guard, and it made me, you know, slightly woozy for a minute. And, and even last night, you know, around midnight, as I was, you know, still working on my sermon, I could still kind of feel the remnants of the friction of that, that rubber baseball. But there's no real mark, I don't think, tell me later if there is. It, it, it doesn't hurt. It was this momentary, you know, I think the net had slowed it down mostly before it got to me. And it hurt for a moment, a split second, and it was gone. And I was then back to coaching my son again and, and, and joyously, you know, celebrating that time with him. And if you live, if I live 10 years, 20 years, 50 years of misery on this planet, it will be like the glancing blow of that rubber baseball in the light of eternity. I don't know if we will forget things in God's kingdom, but if we do, there will be a time when the trials of this age are so dwarfed by the millions of years that we've enjoyed since them, that they're gone, they're forgotten, and they mean nothing. So the kingdom citizens will live out a renunciation of the world's riches. At this point, Jesus takes his disciples aside and he reminds them the third time, this is the third time Luke has told us that Jesus tries to explain this to his disciples, that he's going to die. He's going to Jerusalem, they're going to abuse him, they're going to kill him, and he's going to rise from the dead. And they don't understand. And that's an important point. We know, and I suspect you know, that Jesus is going to die on a cross. He's going to be crucified. Following Jesus means going where he goes. That's what follow means. It's a basic word. And that's, you know, when Jesus is saying this, he is alerting his followers that this journey that they are on with him is going to lead to his death and his resurrection. And that's why I am speaking of this as the cross-shaped life. Jesus' followers, if they are his followers, must in some way follow him even to the cross. And, and these comportments or, or characteristics we see along the way and, and described in vivid detail what cross-shaped living looks like. It's a series of crucifixions, of dines to this world. We've already seen what it looks like to kill or to crucify our pride and to live in a bi-directional humility and what it looks like to crucify our desires for what the world can offer, renounce our riches. But the disciples didn't understand, again, what Jesus was trying to tell them. And that's important. They couldn't conceive of a coming king who would be treated so horrifically. I don't know if they thought it was a parable Maybe they were afraid, as they had been in the past, to ask Jesus what it meant because they were afraid that he would, you know, rebuke them. For whatever reason, they don't get it. They don't ask. But it was a simple matter. It really needed no explanation. He meant exactly what he said. He was speaking plainly. And on the heels of that, we have Jesus entering Jericho. Jericho is maybe a, 
12, 15 mile walk from Jerusalem, uh, slightly north, mostly east. He was approaching his destination, and as he passed through, a, a blind man begins crying out to him. The crowds rebuke him. Maybe he was distracting, maybe he was annoying. Again, as a, a blind man, he offers very little to society. He's just a beggar. He is not valuable. He is less than a second-class citizen. So he's not unlike the infants that were being brought to Jesus before. And he, too, is rebuked. And Jesus stops, and he asks him what he desires. A man desires to see. And Jesus grants this request. His faith has saved him, Jesus says, or, or made him well in your translation. There's not really a difference here. It's both. And what's his response? To follow Jesus and give praise to God. And it causes others nearby to give God praise also. There's so much we could dig into here, but let me hammer in on his faith. Because what faith does this man demonstrate? Well, consider his plea. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I think there's two acts of faith in that statement. Son of David is an interesting phrase because it's not a title that Jesus has used of himself, but it is very literally true. He is a descendant of the great king of the Jews, David. The son of David was a title for the Israelite king and a title for the coming Messiah, the anointed one who would reign on David's throne. There's an irony here, isn't it? That this blind man clearly saw who Jesus was even when his very disciples were blinded to the truth of the mission. But this blind man recognized the rightful ruler of the world. He knew his king. And all those who would be citizens of the kingdom must first recognize its rightful ruler. It's not enough to receive Jesus as a moral teacher, a guy with some good ideas, even a guy with good ideas that, uh, that we've messed up over time. It's not enough. You must see him as king. You must see him as the one who has a right to rule. Kings don't take orders. They're not obligated to give suggestions. It is not a Republican democracy. It is, they command their subjects. In world history in high school, I suspect most of us learned about the political theory of benevolent monarchy, the idea that the ideal form of government was a single effective ruler who ruled with benevolence, with care and compassion for their citizens. It was a nice idea, always failed, because in reality, the monarchies are filled with jerks, and even the benevolent ones are simply not good enough. But Jesus is the omnibenevolent monarch, the all-good monarch, the one who never fails to demonstrate his care and his compassion for his citizens. He sympathizes with his citizens and unites with them so that his good is their good and their good is his good. And he leads them to peace and to glory. And we know this. How do we know this? Because he's the king 
who is going to Jerusalem to die. He is the king who will give up his own life to pay for the sins of the world so that he can pour out mercy and the forgiveness of sins to all who put their trust in him and him alone. What king or queen has died for their citizens? History is filled with rulers who commanded their troops to battle to die for them. But it is surely bereft of any examples of a king or queen who died to save every one of his own. And so it's no coincidence, perhaps, this blind man's request demonstrates another piece of faith. Sort of like the parabolic tax collector, have mercy on me. He sees Jesus as the source of God's mercy. And so he comes with nothing. He comes with no pretense, no proofs of his worthiness. And he says, Jesus, I need you. Have mercy on me. And so the blind man recognized the rightful ruler and humbly threw himself before him for mercy. And it was granted. And he became a citizen of the kingdom. Citizens recognize the rightful ruler. The fourth characteristic comes in the next episode. And it's a, it's a fun one because so many of these themes are woven into it at this point. And we have another man who's desperate to see. And he also has a physical limitation. He's short. But he will not, this will not stop him from finding this man, Jesus. So he climbs a tree. But as it would happen, Jesus is looking for him. Jesus knows who he is because he knows his own. And it is his mission, as he said before, to seek the lost. Zacchaeus was a tax collector like the man in the opening parable. He was rich like the ruler before him, but God was about to do the impossible. He was about to do that miracle on Zacchaeus' heart by which the only way that anyone can come to find the mercy of God. The camel was going to go through the eye of the needle. Here's Zacchaeus. He was no ruler, no religious leader. He's one of those dreaded tax collectors. He's a sinner. And what does Zacchaeus do? He hears the voice of Jesus call to him, and he comes down the tree, and there's that word again. He receives Jesus. He welcomes him into his home. Jesus takes some flack for that, as he often did. But not only that, he repents. He does what the rich ruler couldn't do. He changes his life. He commits to unloading half of his wealth for the sake of the poor and paying back with interest anyone he's ever cheated as a tax collector or for that matter any other way. His heart is changed. He now cares more for the king than the kitsch of this world. Now notice the difference between him and the rich ruler. The ruler came asking for eternal life and Jesus suggested renouncing his wealth to follow him. But Jesus makes no such demand on Zacchaeus. But when Zacchaeus encounters Jesus, his heart is already inclined to exactly that sort of surrender. The rich ruler walks away very sad, but Zacchaeus welcomes Jesus joyfully. 
Zacchaeus is trying to recognize the ruler, but the ruler recognizes him. He renounces the riches of this world too. And we see coming into a little more relief here than anywhere else before in the passage, a new element, a, a, a fourth comportment, and that is radical repentance. His life is entirely turned around. He is turning his back on sin. And any life of fraud that he had led before this, he is putting it behind him. Repentance, in his case, looks like paying back the people he has cheated. It's not an idea he just created that goes back to the Old Testament law. He's confessing that his ways are wrong, that God's ways are right, and he's going to change and live by God's ways now. That's a basic definition of repentance. Agreeing that God is right and walking that direction now. Repentance comes with faith, and faith comes repentance. They're never separated. There's no turning toward Christ without turning away from sin. It's a changing orientation. When Google Maps you know, tells you, you know, in 200 feet, take a U-turn, there is no option there because you either take the U-turn or you head in exactly the opposite direction of where you intend to go. The citizens of the kingdom live lives of radical repentance. Finally, Jesus tells another parable. It's important to notice why he tells this parable, straight up. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So the king of the Jews was entering the capital of the Jews, and they are starting to think this is all coming together. All this discussion of the kingdom, this approach to Jerusalem, the city of the great king, the recognition of a blind man that he is the son of David, it's brought a messianic fervor to the people. And on one hand, they're right, Jesus is the Messiah. But on another hand, Jesus knew that they had some incorrect assumptions. Remember, his disciples couldn't understand that the path of his life would involve his death. The people are expecting a triumphant victory parade and the full arrival of God's kingdom over all of Israel's foes. But the kingdom was not going to appear like that, not now, not for a while. Jesus must go away for a while and then return with all of his glory. And so in the parable, a nobleman goes away to receive a kingdom, which as I understand it, would not have been a strange thought in ancient Rome. Everything flew through Rome, so if Rome were to give you the right to rule a tract of land, you went away to Rome, received your right to rule, and then you could return boss people around. All such kingdoms were granted centrally by Rome. However, this nobleman faces unusual problems. Some of the people of the land don't want him as their ruler. They speak evil about him and try to persuade the powers that be to prevent it. It doesn't seem to concern the nobleman very much, though, does it? We kind of forget about them for a few verses. Instead, he goes to some of his servants, some of, uh, some of these who work at his pleasure. They work on his behalf. While he's gone, he wants them to engage in business with his resources. They're functioning like a fiduciary or, I suppose, a property manager. They're given a mina each. A mina was about a pound of money, which is about 100 denarii or about 100 days wages. I suppose that might be six to $12,000. It's hard to make comparisons between modern money and, and ancient money. 
lot of dough, though. And their job was to increase the master's worth while he's gone. And when he returns, he calls the servants, and and we hear from three of them. One saw a 1,000% profit. One saw a 500% profit. These two are rewarded with a rule of their own, sort of a sub-rule under the king, governor perhaps. Another saw no profit because in fear he did nothing but protect the investment. The nobleman, now king, is upset and takes his money away and gives it to the first, and then he calls for his enemies to be executed. It's kind of a harsh tone. And it is a parable, but it's told with some historical details that would have been relevant and would have captured the attention of his hearers. A few things, though, that I think we draw away from this parable. Obviously, uh, the, the purpose of the parable is that the kingdom isn't coming yet. Jesus must return to the Father to receive the kingdom in glory and then return when the time is right. That's the big idea. But then within there, Jesus has something else he wants to get across. There, there will be those who oppose Jesus' rule from the beginning, both directly and indirectly. There are some who just, I don't like Jesus. And there will be some whose perception of his rule will be more like, I don't, you know, Jesus is fine, but I, I, you know, what he wants us to do is not really for me. They don't like his standards, his norms, his ethics. They don't like the cruciform life, the cross-shaped life. But the heart of the parable centers around these servants, doesn't it? Uh, These are Jesus' disciples. And they're not to be idle in waiting for their master, but to engage in work, work that is designed to increase the glory of Jesus while they await his return. And they show what kind of servants they are and whether they truly are his servants by how they act while he is away. The cross-shaped life of the citizens is a readying for the reign of the king. The cross-shaped life is a readying for the reign of the king. And, And the way we ready ourselves for the reign of the king is that we are actively working in this world with whatever he has entrusted us with for the sake of his glory. And there's a disparity here, right? We, we see three groups. We see those groups that do precisely that. He comes back, you know, one, one uh, definition of glory, maybe you've heard this, is, is weight. The, the word in Hebrew for glory is weight. And so you can think of someone's glory as their weightiness. And if Jesus gives them a pound of money and, and they, they bring that pound back with 10 more pounds, it's, a, it's weightier, right? He has more. He has more honor. He has more prestige. What do we do with the things that Jesus has entrusted us with? The clothes on our back, the food on our table, the talents that he has offered to us, the time that he has given us. What do we do with it for his sake? 
What do we do with it so that when he returns, he is more honored, more glorified, more beloved than if we had not been here or if we had not used those things? That is how the citizens of the kingdom will have shown themselves to be when the king returns. On the other hand, there will be those who never looked like citizens at all. They never had any interest in serving this king. They will be destroyed. But there will also be this group who looked like his servants. They, they called themselves his servants. But at the end of the day, they squandered their resources and their time with which they were entrusted. So that when Jesus returns, he is absolutely no more glorious by the hand of that third so-called servant than he was before he left. And everything he has is taken away from him. He's now numbered no differently than the citizens who never claimed to be his servants and who were cast out and destroyed. The cross-shaped life of the citizens is one of readying for the reign of the king. So there it is. There's the, the cross-shaped life for you. And another way to put that is this is what it means to be a Christian be a follower of Jesus Christ. It means to live a life that is fundamentally crucified, put to death. We said, saw earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus says that those who follow him must take up their cross. And so we too are crucified if we were to follow Jesus. We have a crucifixion of our pride that leads us to humility. There's a crucifixion of our desire for this world's riches that leads us to be able to renounce them and live with an open hand. There's a crucifixion of our desire to rule ourselves and so we can submit ourselves to the rightful ruler of this kingdom. There's a crucifixion of our old sinful way of life so that we can live lives of radical repentance. And there's a crucifixion of our time and our treasure in the here and now so that we can make ready for the reign of that king. Let's pray. Father, may our lives look like the cross of our Savior. Put to death in us any evil and unworthy thing By your Spirit, may we put to death everything that is not of your kingdom. Our desire for riches and goods and comforts in this life, our desire to live comfortably and pridefully, put to death our arrogance. May we humbly come before you, our King, who has every right to order us around 
and yet dies for us. May we use wisely our time and our treasure to prepare for your return. And Father, may those who have not yet walked a crucified life, those here who are maybe not sure if they are a good and faithful servant or they are just a claimant to be a servant, or maybe they even know that they have so far rebelled against your rule outwardly, not desiring for you to be the one over them. We pray, Father, for those that you would take the camel through the eye of the needle and work the miracle in their heart that they might trust you as king and turn and be healed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.